Is the Bible inerrant? And does it really matter? Well, hey there, and welcome to another episode of My Strange Bible. Alex, how's it going, my friend? Uh, everything is going well, and I will say, Steve, the Bible is inerrant. Don't ask me the definition I'll... of it, but it is. <laughs> just take my word for it. It is. Take your word for it. <laughs> yes. Take my word for it, too. We are stake, We are planting We're our flag the in the here. ground. Yes. By golly. I, I, so, I, you know, I'll go there. I, I am an inerrantist. Are, do you consider yourself an inerrantist? Yeah, 100%. But yeah, yeah. I guess that begs the question: What is inerrancy? <laughs> what? Oh, uh, well, hold your horses, Alex. We need to slow down a little bit. We slow need to it slow down. down a little bit. Yeah. So, so this is a big topic, and let's introduce this a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, this is going to be an introductory episode to what we we might call an occasional series, and we'll probably have a few of these that sort of run as the podcast goes on. Topics that are really deep in nature such that they require, you know, a lot of different thoughts on a lot of wide-ranging subjects. Some of them might even be worth bringing in an expert to talk about, or Mm. some of them just might warrant further study. So we'd like to introduce the discussion of inerrancy on this particular episode and, and begin talking about why it matters and the big sort of important thoughts surrounding the debate. Uh, And then we'll cover some of the more specifics on later episodes. I think that's a, a good idea, and I think a great place to start is talking about, we've touched about it in past episodes on kind of the Bible being an ancient text, but I think that's a very important aspect to begin. Again, without really touching into the definition of inerrancy, there's just a different view of when we think of inerrant, when we read a history text today versus the biblical mm. text which was written thousands of years ago. So what's your kind of view on how the ancient text that the Bible is, how does that affect the inerrancy question? Yeah. Even in what you just said, there's actually a couple of layers, right? Yeah. So think about this, right? If a human being writes something and it happens to be entirely truthful and error-free, does it follow from that 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 human is inerrant? Mm. Of course not. The answer is no. Like, no. A human is not inerrant just because they wrote something. Yes. That happened to be free of errors. That is, for all intents and purposes, a fluke. Yes. Right? When we're talking about the Bible, we're looking at a document that um, s- claims of itself to be inspired by God. And I'm kind of mixing together some words here and some concepts. Yes, the idea is that the Bible is multiple books, but Scripture uh, it affirms Scripture. Um, you know, Paul calls his own writings scripture. Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. The Old Testament scriptures are obviously referred to as scripture. So there's all this internal self-authentication stuff going on. And it's pretty much without contest that the Bible all throughout considers itself to be inspired of God. Um, the word theopneustos, God breathed, is how the text um, uh, puts it. And so, you know, there is a there's a a a sort of two layer question when it comes to the Bible as an ancient text. Okay, since the Bible's an ancient text, does it fall into the same category? Does it get special treatment, in other words, mm. apart from other ancient texts, or do we just simply view the Bible as an ancient text and deal with the concept of inerrancy, regardless? So another way of putting that would be, even if we're going to believe in inerrancy, ought we allow the Bible to use common literary devices and figures of speech and idioms and things of that nature from the time in which it was written, even if some of those things would be very uncomfortable to our current modern day sensibilities? So that is one of the huge questions surrounding uh, the inerrancy debate. But just to be more specific on this, and then I'm sure you'll have some thoughts, but just to be more specific, why talk about this on My Strange Bible, right? This is sort of one of those, like, we're not talking about an individual specific passage of Scripture today or something like that. Um, of course, it is strange enough that that we're dealing with a Bible that claims to be, a, a, like, a book that is the words of God, but it was written by humans. Okay, so let's let's start there. Mm. That's strange, right? Yeah. So it, it's, it's fair game, right, to talk about this subject on 
by a strange Bible. It, it's literally pretty odd that we're talking about an ancient document that claims to be uh, breathed by God, and yet the ancients inspired, or the ancient uh, people actually wrote this document, or, or this this set of documents. A subject for the future is uh, William Lane Craig has a really interesting Molinistic theory of how mm. the Bible was uh, in, uh, actually written and inspired, which is quite fascinating. We should talk about that yeah. and write that down for, for the future. Um, but here's why I wanted to talk about this. As we go through the Bible, we are going to land on some strange passages where things are going to get dicey sometimes. And there's going to be questions as to who wrote this. Was this text updated by a scribe or was it purely written and preserved by Moses? Do we have a potential error in the text as we're looking at this and comparing it with another text um, from within the Bible that appear to say two different things about the same subject matter? And so as we go through this podcast, inevitably it's going to come up the issue of inerrancy. And I think that's why we have to talk about it. <laughs> Just that, uh, that little brief introduction brings even more. It's an onion. Uh, what does, uh, yeah. Yeah. What does, uh, donkey on Trek say? It's, uh, it's, um, y'all ball up in your layers, onion boy. And that's kind of, that's kind of what this is, is it, in not even you peel down this first layer, then you get to the next. It's like the layers are all strewn and intermingled together. Cause you do have all those instances that you brought up of, just from the fact that it's strange that that we believe that God breathed into these people and, you know, inspired them. But it was written by errant people that, you know, like what you just said at the beginning, yeah. humans are not inerrant. Everyone can agree with that across the board. Um, humans make mistakes. Humans make errors. Um, so just the leap that the Bible is inerrant, whatever that means, um, to like what you said, is what we have exactly what Moses Row is it scribes and and is there an error here and I'm sure we'll get into translation things and transmitting and there's just it covers yeah. so many different topics um but uh, having said all that um yeah I believe that there's a few areas that we can definitely focus on and what you alluded to is this is kind of kind of be an ongoing series will where we will kind of touch on a few different things I know that we're going to discuss a little bit on what is inerrancy and kind of the definitional aspect of it and uh kind of jokingly before we get into that maybe in another couple of years you and i will come up with our own definition of inerrancy after going through all these things but uh we will see yeah. <laughs> we might we might have to <laughs> we might have to yes yeah so um so, so okay let's let's so let's start there a basic definition of inerrancy is that the bible is truthful in all that it affirms or that all that it intends to teach, mm -hmm. okay? And so even that, like, you could talk for three hours now about yeah. just that, okay? Because that is itself sort of a loaded definition. This is the, the classic definition of inerrancy, is 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 basically that the, the, the Bible is inerrant on all things that it affirms and that it intends to teach. And so then the question becomes, as you go further into that onion, um, well, what? does it mean for the Bible to in, to affirm or to intend to teach something that we know today is factually wrong? Mm. Right. What does, what does that, what does that mean? And is that possible? Okay. Now the infamous Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy, which is the classical sort of evangelical gatekeeping definition for biblical inerrancy uh, was pretty clear in its uh, affirmations and denials that there that the Bible, if, if the Bible commented at all on something, then it was truthful in the way that it recorded what was commented on. And nothing from outside of the Bible, including from the fields of science or philosophy, could overturn what the biblical record, had to say mm. about subject matter. So in other words, you couldn't use science to, to adjudicate w whether w what the Bible said was true or not, um, or philosophy or, or history or any other 
outside source. The Bible itself was truthful in what it affirmed and it couldn't be overturned by those other things, right? Um, and so that's, a, that's sort of a, a starting point. But a big problem with this is that, honestly, everybody gets to define inerrancy mm. on their own. I mean, the Chicago Statement is nothing more than a bunch of guys who got together, put some affirmations and denials in a document, and I'm minimizing it a little bit. It was a hugely important document. Please don't get me wrong. Right? But it's essentially a bunch of guys in the modern era who got together and said, this is our definition of inerrancy. This is what we stand for. And it was a significant enough group of evangelical leaders that essentially that document became a test for, for evangelicalism. Um, it's like if you didn't affirm this, you basically were not allowed to call yourself an evangelical. You were essentially a, a liberal. Mm. And uh, what has happened is that over the years— more and more information as ancient Near Eastern studies have gotten better um, and, and archaeology and just all these developments is that we know more now about the ancient world than we knew when this document was created. And we understand more about how they would have written. And there's legitimate questions as to whether or not the Chicago Statement should be updated or if it should stay the same. Um, in other words, it may not be as all-encompassing as you know it was once thought to be and so that's a big problem is that you know you could talk to five different people about their definition of inerrancy and they'll give you their own definition of the word yeah right they, they don't all there is no god doesn't spell out the details of of what inerrancy entails and so you have to use logic and and reasoning and thought processes to 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 come to these ideas. And there have been different attempts at that that we can talk about, but it, it's really hard to, to unpack. Even, and I think it's it's quite a good definition or aspect of a desk definition to say that the Bible is, however you want to word it, correct in all that it intends to affirm or that it does affirm. That, yeah. seems, that mm-hmm. seems pretty good from the surface, but even when you get past that, well, what, is it that easy to tell what the Bible is affirming in every single instance? I would argue it's not. In a lot of cases, no, yeah. it is, but in many cases, it's not. Is it the, um, I can't think of any specific examples off the top of my head, but is it the prophet that is affirming this in his um, ancient um, ancient Middle Eastern uh, way of understanding how the world works or, or the gods or anything? Or is it um, God trying to affirm something actual about the universe through the prophet? It, and so you have all these, yeah— it, the Bible is accurate and all that it tends to affirm that that sounds good, but even that is very difficult to peel back and r- really understand. And that's where it does kind of come to a, I hate to say it, you know, everyone says, well, I take it as a case by case basis. And yeah, that does get overused, but a lot of it is true. You know, what is it affirming in this verse? What does the chapter affirm? What is the theme of this book? How does it, you know, how does the thematic elements yeah. appear interact with the new Testament? And so there's just such a big, um, yeah, it's not it's not as easy as just a simple definition. Yeah, well, so this is a great point. So let's look at an example of that, okay? Let's take creation. I love creation. Mm. This is one of my favorite topics, science in the Bible, right? So uh, this is really fascinating to me because uh, it, it this like uh, science in the Bible is like a really important topic. It's it's one of the big issues mm-hmm. that has led to this. Two people wanting to question inerrancy and like re, you know, find new definitions for it that would be a little bit more expansive. And so, like, for example, there's a huge swath of people who I would disagree with, but 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 who would agree with a lot of the other stuff we talk about on this podcast. But they would say that they would want to make this distinction about the Bible. And let's say Genesis one. They would want to say, well, Genesis one is not teaching science. It's teaching theology. Okay, I get that. Genesis is not a science textbook. Totally agree. I understand. Okay. Um, but the text says words that have implications for real world things. It is not describing it in exhaustive scientific detail. I think that's on purpose, but that's a conversation for another day, kind of. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, the, the Bible gives information that does have entailments for the real world, which is why the scientific idea of young age creationism, young earth creationism exists, right? Now, 
the view, young earth creationism, the, the church's historical view of origins of the church has existed for since the Bible was written, right? For Jewish and <laughs> Christian history for the last, you know, um, the, you know, three or 4,000 years. Uh, but the, but the fact that you can actually do science along those lines has been, you know, a, a more recent, recent development. I would say the last 500 ish years or so. Okay. Um, and so you would have people who say, well, Genesis 1 is wrong on cosmology, right? It's wrong about science. It's wrong because evolutionary history is true, quote unquote. Um, the Bible teaches a dome over the earth, quote unquote. I disagree with that. But again, that's that's the view of a lot of these people. They would say that the Bible teaches that there's a glass dome over the mm -hmm. earth and that the earth is held up by pillars and it's there's a three-tiered cosmology and the Right, the, the the earth is flat in the ancient mind, etc. Right, and the Genesis one, among lots of other passages, um, seems to have this erroneous thought process in it. Right, but since the text is teaching theology, it only quote unquote affirms mm -hmm. its theological truths in a way that Vern Poitras has put it, who is a a champion of biblical inerrancy. One way that he he has put this is that um what people are suggesting is that the Bible uses erroneous cargo or excuse me, an erroneous vehicle to carry the cargo of truth. The erroneous vehicle would be the, would, would be this ancient cosmology that is wrong, but it's carrying the cargo of theological truth, which is true. And that's what as an errantists, we mm. should affirm as true. The rest of it is just sort of baggage. That is a product of the time that was written. Okay. Now I have a problem with this and I mean, I actually have a number of problems with this, but I, I want to keep it real basic for this episode, okay? Uh, a big problem that I have with this is that I'm currently going through the book of Job, and so this is really on my mind right now. And Job, uh, God rather, appeals when he is, when he finally enters the conversation, there is a strong appeal to the works of God in creation mm -hmm. for Job, to say, for, for God to, to demonstrate his power. So all throughout Job, you actually have these things mentioned, but, but especially when, when God enters yeah. the scene and starts talking, he points to creation as being a witness of God's power and sovereignty. Job, were you there when I did all these things, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Uh, no, I, you weren't there. I was there. And I, I think it's weird. <laughs> I just think it's weird to say that Genesis 1, we shouldn't think, has any impact on, on really the way the world really was when other texts appeal to Genesis 1 and other passages mm. as well, uh, talking about them from the standpoint of God being truthful. And, and us actually, it, it's actually, it's a really interesting logic because it's actually God appealing to his works in creation as proof of the theological messaging that the text is actually teaching. So how do you dice with that or, or slice, uh, slice and dice, whatever with, with that thin of a razor's <clears throat> edge to say that the text is affirming this, but not affirming this. It's a great question you've asked and it's a hard one for people to answer. It's a, it's a good, and you're right. It's a tough question just by looking at Genesis. I mean, I mean, we could sit here until, until we die and not, and not exhaust all the conversations of it, but the science aspect where it collides with, with that thought of inerrancy is kind of a weird thing in and of itself. It's almost like it, as a Christian, you either come to a place where the world is supernatural or it's not um, with any, yeah. with anything that's yeah. scientific. Of course, Steve and I are very much like, we love, we love learning about space. Like we, we love science. Like Steve and I, we we just we love digging into things and and we just find that stuff so cool. But um, there's nothing scientific about um, about a donkey talking, and yet we seem to have right. that in scripture. So when it comes to science, I guess you could say that the Bible is not inerrant because a donkey talks, and that is not scientific. And so the science has a has a weird thing in there where yes, of course, someone coming to the table that is not a Christian and only looks purely at materialism or science of what has been observed will say, well, obviously that's a falsehood. That's that's an error. But if you're a Christian, you believe in supernatural. It, it kind of is 
I guess you could almost say two worlds colliding. It's 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 very different. And so that is also an aspect yeah. of inerrancy that needs to be kind of examined and fleshed out as well. Yeah, this is that's actually really another really great point that I hadn't even considered. But but this is where see a scientist scientists want to appeal to methodological naturalism. Um, so there's two schools there, right? There's philosophical naturalism, which is the harder version, and methodological naturalism, which is the softer version. So philosophical naturalism says you can never, for any reason, appeal beyond the physical world, beyond the natural world when you're dealing with science. Methodological naturalism says, well, I might want to have conclusions mm that are outside of the realm of science. But when I'm doing science, when I'm in the lab, I am a methodological naturalist. I am pretending as though naturalism is true. I, I personally think both of those are just bunk. I think that the intelligent design movement is is literally like, you know, case in point of you can actually infer mm. intelligent design from physical phenomena. And when when you... If you can bridge that gap, it's like it's like there are um, um, there are people who will look at the historical case for the resurrection of Jesus and say, yeah, well, this fact, this fact, this fact, this fact, but I'm a historian, so I'm not allowed to go beyond the bounds of, of what can happen in real yeah. history, and so I cannot conclude resurrection. And it's like William Lane Craig has asked of that person why. Why can't you conclude resurrection? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, a resurrection is scientifically impossible, but if all the evidence is there, mm -hmm. it's not like science is the only arbiter of what can happen, yeah. of, of what is true. Literally, the thought that science can do that is a philosophical thought. So we're already in, in philosophy. And in fact, science used to be called natural philosophy. That what it was, that's what it was called for hundreds of years. And so uh, science is not the only arbiter of truth. And so... Uh, if the evidence points to a supernatural event having happened, then you know, then that's what it is, and it, it we shouldn't be restricted on that. So, so I, I just disagree with the fact of even making that restriction at all. But you're right; it is going to play into your definition of inerrancy. What do you actually allow for? What do you allow for the text to say? Um, and you know, I, I think I think people who are so I don't believe the Bible is a science textbook, but I believe that if it comments on things that have scientific implications mm -hmm. in the real world, that they're true. I really believe when the Bible says that the earth hangs on nothing, I really I really believe that somehow the writer wrote that under the inspiration of God, something that they would not have known and could mm -hmm. not have known. I really believe that when they say that, that in Job also, that there are springs under the sea. We had no idea. There were springs under the sea until the 1970s. <laughs> I had literally no idea. That had never been discovered or talked about before, but it's in Job. I, I don't have a great explanation for that other than some form of scientific foreknowledge. And I, I, I really say that hesitatingly because I, I'm not, you know, in the camp that they were writing scientifically. I don't think it was their mm -hmm. goal to, like, right. write as as scientists. I really don't. Mm. Um and yet I look at these passages and I'm just like, this seems really inc incontrovertible. That are, if, now, if, if that are strange. <laughs> that are strange. That are strange for They're a writer strange. from back then to write, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now let me point something else on that because I'm going to roll now. Let me point something else on that. So uh, Job also says that the earth rests on pillars. Or not that the earth rests on pillars. It, it does not say that actually. That's what people wanted to say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it doesn't say that. It says that there are pillars of the earth. Mm -hmm. Okay, the pillars of the earth tremble. Now, in at least one of the scenarios where it says that in Job, which uh, Job is a wisdom literature, so it's it's very poetic in, in structure, and you have in poetry one thing called um, um, synonymous parallelism, where two lines, lines A and B, are talking about the same thing, and it's in a different format. Okay, um, um, it's two different two different word pictures that mean the same thing, and so in at least one of the references where pillars are mentioned in Job. Uh, it's a immediate comparison with the mountains of, of the earth, okay? And so there are people who want to say, like like literally Answers from Genesis wrote an article. I actually thought it was kind of funny. And I'm not, by the way, if you don't know, I'm not actually not the biggest fan of Answers from Genesis on a lot of things, but I thought this article title was funny. 
they they wrote an article that was like the earth hangs on pillars of nothing question mark um because it's you got job where the earth hangs on nothing but also it has pillars that tremble mm. and and so the question is if if you are a person looking at the bible as an ancient document and you want to affirm inerrancy is that a contradiction is it contradictory to say that the earth hangs on nothing but it's also resting on pillars and i know people who want to say yes Number one, that means there's an error in the Bible, right? I know people who want to say, who want to expand their definition of inerrancy and say, no, that's not an error. The science, the the ancients weren't science people. They weren't doing science. So they had different thoughts about things. And so it's, yes, it's contradictory, but it doesn't matter yeah. that it's contradictory. The, the Bible's not trying to teach us that. And then the other hand is, well, if the earth, right, if you're dealing with like a natural version of truth, the correspondence theory of truth, that is, when you say truth, that proposition corresponds to reality, then you can't both have the earth resting on pillars and mm. um, hanging on nothing. And so what that person would want to say is, okay, well, something here must be metaphorical in, in some way. And so, again, when you look at the comparisons of everything, I think a, the most reasonable understanding of that is that the pillars of the earth are the mountains. On the, now, this gets to something else that we're going to talk about in a minute. Job was one of the earliest books, possibly, probably one of the earliest books written, um, uh, which means it would have been written arguably the soonest after the flood. And we know that the flood would have been, like literally there's a process called isostasy where the mountains and the earth is literally still settling from the effects of the flood. And those effects are estimated to be able to last for as long as 25,000 years. So we're still experiencing that. In my opinion, this is what earthquakes are and, and, and tsunamis and things like that. It's actually still just the world dealing with global unrest from the flood. So imagine how bad that would have been in the early days. So the mountains tremble, the mountains shake, right? Um, and even so, the earth remains, right? So the earth, the earth stands still, right? The earth, the earth doesn't move. That's other imagery from later prophets and language that comes in there, like the earth shall not be moved, but yet the pillars of the earth tremble. And so you're an ancient writer, you're looking around and you see what look like pillars in the sky, you know, on the earth extending up to the sky. And so those would be the mountains, right? So um, either that or you have a contradiction in the passage where the earth is somehow resting on these pillars beneath the earth that allegedly would have been in the ancient mind and also somehow it hangs on nothing. And so um, and so when you get into issues like this, you know, I believe that most of the time there's a way to harmonize these things rather than appealing to them as explicit Errors. And keeping it consistent too, you know, instead of treating one verse this way, another verse that way, and then it, it's, and so there's, and there's a couple different <laughs> like ways to view the consistency aspect of it throughout the Bible. I do think that there are different worldviews that are more consistent than others, but um, that's another challenge is you do have a lot of different worldviews that people who are Christian and they just might view how something in the Bible is a little bit different than others that you can argue is definitely consistent. Um, and so that's another challenge to it as well. Just another layer to unfold is, is consistency. How much does that relate to inerrancy and does it at all? So again, another yeah. topic maybe for another time, but there's just so much there. Yeah. I actually think it does relate, and it's a it's a huge one. If you can't interpret the passage, if you can't interpret something the mm. same way in multiple places, for example, right? A lot of people want to say that the Bible teaches a flat earth. We apparently have commenters who think that the Bible teaches a flat <laughs> earth. Okay. Strangely, though, there are some passages that they take literally that I think you should take metaphorically or poetically because they're mm. written in that language and that sort of literature, right? Um that I think they are the ones who hyper-literalize the Bible. The clearest example I can think of, is, of, of this is that um, there are, you know, uh, the, uh, one of the, uh, some of the imagery, I believe this comes from Isaiah, is that the earth, or, or that the Lord uh, basically sits atop the circle mm. of the earth, right? And there are young earth creationists who want to hyper-literalize it and say that that's talking about the earth being a globe. Uh, there might be an argument there, but that's another topic for another day. But like the flat earthers want to say, well, yeah, like, like <laughs> right sitting the on circle. the circle of the earth, like because <laughs> the earth was flat, the earth was flat. So imagine God essentially looking down, you know, in sort of a um, um, anthrop anthropomorphic kind of way. Like imagine yeah. God like looking down from his perch in the heavens and seeing yeah. the circular flat earth, right? But 
Those same people want to appeal to a passage that talks about the four corners of the earth and say, the earth is flat, it has corners. <laughs> Wait a minute. Didn't think circles had corners. So perhaps the four corners of the earth, especially in poetic literature, can, can we just say that that's like the four directions? The Bible also uses another term for that, the mm -hmm. four winds. The four winds, the four corners of the earth. The Bible obviously has categories for the east, the west, the north, and the south. Remember, your, your sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, right? This is normal stuff, natural stuff, that if we're going to be consistent, we would take each passage on its own and look at it in its context and understand the style of literature that is written in, et cetera, versus you get to, you have to be really inconsistent, I think, when you're trying to sharpshoot some of this ancient mindset stuff into the Bible, like a lot of people are. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible was written, it was an ancient document. My opinion is that is that some things have been falsely attributed to Israel or and specifically to the Bible that I don't think they believed. And I don't think there's much ancient evidence at all that they would have bought into these beliefs uh, of other ancient cultures. So some of it's a little dicier than that, but the consistency thing is great. To and all those uh, aspects that you just mentioned about the, the four corners of the world, the four winds are, <laughs> are some of the more normal ones. <laughs> I've heard some pretty strange, uh, some strange, uh, yeah, takes on what those verses mean. Um, even stranger than oh, flat yeah. Earth. Sorry to everyone, flat Earthers yeah. out there, but I've heard all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. So consistency. Yeah. It's not even one that I wrote down, mm -hmm. but that's a that's a really big yep, that's a really sure. big issue. Um, so, so why don't we move on to this next problem here? Um, and and this has to do with the people who would want to take a more expansive definition of an of inerrancy. And so if you want to if if you want to just spend an hour and a half of your life listening to a very obtuse <laughs> conversation, please go watch the debate between Michael Kona and Richard Howe at the SES 2019 Apologetics Conference. It's a debate on inerrancy. And uh that in my opinion that debate um very uh clearly highlights a lot of the problems that that we have. And at one point in that debate, Richard Howe asked Michael Kona, which, by the way, let me just say that listening to them talk, I actually thought Michael Kona had better arguments than Richard Howe, okay? But, at this, but, but I have my agreements and disagreements with both. And so Richard Howe, you know, asks Mike, because Michael Kona's view is that um, if, a, if a gospel author to accomplish his uh, intents and purposes, changes the day an event took place from another gospel author who had different intents and purposes. His argument is that that is a literary compositional device uh, that was common in the ancient world during the, the time that the Bible was being written in Greco-Roman biography, which is what he um, says that the uh, gospels uh, are written in that style. And so on his view, he can allow for um for 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 Matthew, for example, to change the day entirely from Luke to a different day and it to to encapsulate and to summarize um what he wants to say in, in the telling of his story. The way he puts it is that Luke tells the girl version, you know, the very yeah. verbose like, you know, every little detail and, and Matthew tells the guy version, which is like, eh, it was kind of like this, you know. Um, but so, so he, so he's still, he, he's an inerrantist, right? Mm. He's an inerrantist, but he allows for that on his definition of inerrancy, which is why everybody gets yeah. to define their own thing. It's really strange. But then Richard Howe asks him, well, then Mike, given that, what is an error? What do you consider an error? And I mean, he gave a somewhat. I don't know. I almost want to use the word obtuse again. It was kind of an obtuse answer of like, well, you know, an error would be like if somebody, if one writer said that Jesus did rise from the dead and another writer said that Jesus didn't rise from the dead or something like that. And, and I'm just like, like, uh, like, okay. But like that, that's like, that's like quite the appeal. That, mm. That's like, that, like, that's really bad. Like that, that would, there are, there's such more nuance uh, in the conversation yeah. than something that particular that 
And and Mike's only response was that he would have to just take that on a case by case basis and like look at it. And I understand that. But like, it's a really good point. If you can say the Bible is error free and yet you have Matthew saying something that is literally false, literally saying, affirming this thing happened on this day, but it didn't actually happen on this day. Well, Richard Howell's opinion is, well, that fails the truth test of the correspondence theory of truth. And so it's factually wrong and therefore an error. So they were both inerrantists, but the, the purpose of that debate was to kind of show where they, where they differ on that. And what's really funny about this is that there's been a long-standing debate between Mike Lacona, one of the guys, and uh, Lydia McGrew, who, uh, and I've got blogs on my, I've got all kinds of stuff you can go read about this, and lots of other people do as well, like, like talking through these different issues. Basically, she is totally against these literary device theories. Lydia uh, is a real sweet lady, by the way, and she does not like Mike's theories on this stuff. She thinks it's entirely wrong-headed. Um, and, and there are lots of senses in which she could be considered more conservative than Mike. For heaven's sake, she's like a huge Southern gospel fan. She's like a little sweet little old, you know, middle-aged lady who like loves Southern gospel and is like, you know, she, anyway, the Midwestern and everything. But guess what? She's not mm. an inerrantist because there are one or two little places in the Bible where she thinks she 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 can't find any hope of a plausible little resolution for them. Like a lot of people have harmonizations of stuff. There's one or two that she just can't find a harmonization for that she's willing to admit, yeah, this is an actual error. And so she's actually not an inerrantist. And yet Mike isn't an inerrantist. And yet he has what some would call a very liberal <laughs> sort of view yeah. of the Bible. And so and so that's a good question, right? What is an error, really? And and who gets to define what that is and and like can is there a way to like say like okay this is a factually wrong statement that the biblical authors are making and yet it's not erroneous what what does that look like and so that's part of what the stuff too is when you, you just know? look at i'll just say like the real world or the present world your day in day life isn't it it's annoying when you when you're talking to someone and they have like an answer for everything to explain away everything you know what i mean just someone who you say, oh, well, mm -hmm. um, it, the car was parked backwards. And they say, well, the car couldn't have been parked backwards because of this. And you say, well, maybe it was that. And it, they have an answer for everything and then a way oh, for everything. Yeah. And no matter how odd it is. And I guess that's uh, kind of popped my mind as a comparison where it can be, it can seem, I can see how it would be annoying to someone. And I, I actually, looking at it from maybe an atheist perspective where, um, they say, well, no matter what the Bible says, you're just going to explain away as it's right in this, and you're going to come up with an example. And I actually, I actually get right. that perspective, um, quite a bit. And so that's why I do think that kind of going back to the consistency thing does does work a lot. Um, you were just kind of saying how there's there's a lot of different ways where you can explain away, you know, like a day on different day, and there's different levels of being able to to interpret that. Um, and so it <laughs> it. It is important to define what would be an error, because then you can say if there if there is an error here, then like I will admit there is an error, and here is my definition of what an error would be. Because if you don't have that, then you're just saying, well, no matter what, I'm just going to say that it's right. And yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, yeah. It's it's just a really fascinating debate and discussion overall, um, because the at least in that debate that mm -hmm. I watched and, and honestly many other contexts too, oftentimes the inerrantist or the the conservative inerrantist really comes across, whether they mean to or not, mm -hmm. like a Bible thumper, right? Like 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 so Richard Howe started his whole thing off with an argument, which was basically if if I'm remembering it correctly, it was something I'm gonna mess it up, but it was something along the lines of, you know, if God if God inspired the bible then it's an errant and that's like a logical flow from um the fact that god mm. cannot lie because the bible self-affirms about god that he cannot lie and so and so if if if, if something is going to claim to be the word of god then it must be an error so if god truly inspired a word of god right then that word is an errant god did yeah. inspire a <laughs> word of god and therefore the conclusion is that it's an errant right and so the way that he likes to put it is that he starts there and it is that philosophical and theological take that informs the rest of how he uh, looks at scripture. So, in other words, in that with that view of things, then by like, his default position is there's something else going on there with Matthew. 
Like Matthew is not changing the day there. There must be two temple mm. cleansings, right? Or something like that, which is how people will try to, uh, you know, to, 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 to harmonize those events and, and things of that nature. Um, that, and that's just one kind of specific example. But so whereas for, for Mike, he doesn't start with a philosophical syllogism like that necessarily. He's looking at everything sort of, sort of um, piecemeal. Right, case by case, and like building the case up. His starting point is that even if you rely on what the secular sources affirm about Jesus, then Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, mm. Christianity is true. And so he starts there, yep. which I also respect. He starts there and then says, okay, now that that's secure, the resurrection is secure, even on the facts that the secular scholars will affirm. Okay, resurrection, boom, secure. So then he invites himself to, to explore more freely of what the text is doing in this or that place and how do we allow ourselves to define inerrancy and so i so i I, i'm kind of there like i'm kind of like okay i can see some cases where that more expansive definition of inerrancy would make sense to have but then you're looking at truth theories and saying well what is an error really and how would you even define an error and typically especially in the realm of like science which textual study is like a form of science right um the the question becomes, do you have a falsifiable mm-hmm. theory? Because if the theory has no criteria by which it's falsifiable, then it's not a useful theory for science, right? And so you can't if you can't forensically falsify the the claim that there that you have an inerrant text by pointing to what could be an inerrant text, yep, um, legitimately, then it's really not a useful definition, and your definition just allows for too much. So you have to refine that. So. I think that's something that needs to yeah, be considered. Yeah, I That's a, a little bit off topic, but that's an interesting place. I think a, actually a pretty good place to start is coming to the conclusion that Jesus did rise from the dead and having that solidified just through mm-hmm. historical um, you know, recordings, reportings, and, and coming to that conclusion and then going from there. That's just, I think that's actually a pretty cool aspect to come to it. Yeah, yeah. I think so too. And some of these little nitpicky things, it's like, it's it's almost like you kind of wish you just didn't have to even have the discussion. It's like, you know, but okay. So so all right, let's let's go there because we yep. need to start wrapping this up. And and so what we're gonna do, um, I have devised a. I like I like to think about things in terms of frameworks. Uh, so like this is an area where I think I can help people think through issues. Um, and I like to do that. And so I came up with a. I think it would be called an acronym. It's either an acronym or an acrostic. I don't know which. Um, uh, but it's the word true. And I came up with four things to help you think about the inerrancy debate. And so we can have this in our minds personally, you and me, Alex, as we're thinking through this and various other things. And then our listeners can use this as sort of a framework um, as they learn more about inerrancy and think about it. But I want you to have these sort of things in your mind as we go through. All right. So the first one is the T, which is trusting God's word. All right. So, right. the, The obvious question is if God's word can err. Right. If it if it if it can be factually wrong in something, then can we trust what it it says about anything? Right. Do we have the ability to adjudicate what is truth and what is false? So that that's the that's the first. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, pr- pretty plain and simple. But that's the first it's issue. A, that's a it's a tough issue because. That that goes that goes yeah. into the thinking. And we'll probably have a whole episode about this. Is just the aspect of honestly the characteristics of God, which is you know, is He actually truth? And if if so, well, how do you get to that conclusion? And so, um, trusting God's word is. Um, do you trust God's word? It's a uh, it's a heavy question. Um, that you know, we like to have a reasoning and answer for everything, and so. I imagine we could spend a whole episode just on that topic and why that is a quality of God, if that is why we think that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And again, I'm I'm not necessarily personally, you know, planting a stake in the ground one mm-hmm. way or the other. You know, me, I, I see both sides of the argument. You know, for example, in the background that I, you know, come from, like we talked about, I'm pretty big into creationism and stuff. And I have a little bit different take on that. That's sort of like mainstream young earth creationism. So don't, don't write me off here. Um, uh, but you know, like their creationists have historically said, well, if we can't trust what the Bible says in Genesis, then how do we know we can trust anything, including that Jesus rose from the dead? And I get it, right? Especially, I especially get it because most important biblical doctrines find their foundation mm. in Genesis, right? So 
so and there are certainly some where I'm in agreement, right? So if you say there's no historical Adam, I think your basis for the resurrection is gone. And, and so, right. So if we can't trust what the Bible says about historical Adam, then no, we, we can't trust what the Bible says about Jesus dying for our sins and, and becoming the second Adam. That, that's my view. Um, but if Genesis gets a detail about the physical world and creation wrong, that may, depending on your definition, entail that the Bible is inerrant, but it in no way implies, in my view, that Christianity is false or that Jesus didn't rise from the dead or that Lazarus wasn't yeah. risen from the dead by Jesus or insert any number of other facts that happen. You know, so so I understand this impulse about trusting God's word. It is a big issue. But I also am not convinced by the line of argumentation that says if the Bible is wrong on one small point, then it could be wrong on a number of other points too, or that or that it necessarily is wrong on another number of other points too, or that you would just never be able to adjudicate what's right and what's wrong. I I don't buy into that line of argument, but yeah, anyway, I um I agree with you. I've thought about that before, and again, I know that we'll go into deeper discussions on it. But yeah, even if you could point to say a dozen small things that say, well, this doesn't quite add up to, you know, an actual factual thing, or this is, okay, so you take 12 small things or whatever they are, it, that wouldn't, that still doesn't detract from the entire internal consistency of the Bible and then what we see in history, and it, it doesn't take away from all the other stuff. So I agree with you there. Yeah, and just a, a real quick example to put a yep. button on that, a, or a, um, I guess an analogy, we could say, well, modern... Bible translations, like modern Bible mm -hmm. scholars are pretty much pretty much consensus unified in agreement that the the story of the woman caught in, mm -hmm. in adultery is not original and authentic to yeah. the text of the Bible. Now, there are some people whose view is that it's an authentic story that really happened, and it, it is an authentic Jesus story because it carries all those markers and, and characteristics, but that it was added by a later scribe, and it wasn't in the original autographs. And a lot of these people who believe this would have, you know, would have issues with the same thing, right? They would also say, well, if the Bible's an errand on one thing, it can't be an errand on another. Well, I would just use the same, um, or you know what I mean, right? If the Bible yeah. is in error on one thing, then it, it, it could be an error on other really important things. We wouldn't know which. Well, the argument from the textual side, which those people would agree with and affirm, is that, well, actually, it's because the methodology works so well that the same uh, exact like methods and uh, and data and uh, and all of that and research uh, that lead us to conclude that the woman caught in adultery story is not authentic to the original autographs, the original manuscripts. It's that same body of data and methods and all of that that confirm to us the truthfulness mm. and, and and the accuracy of yeah, the rest right. of the Bible, right? And so it's kind of this double-edged sword you're cutting with where it's like, yeah, we know that this one doesn't belong, but like it's the same methodology that leads us to the conclusion that everything else yeah. does belong. Well, in that same vein, it's kind of like like all of this, all of this data that we know that is true, it's the same methodologies and the same data and research and all that that goes into determining what isn't true. So I think that argument cuts both ways. That's just yeah, an the, I think that's a good one to bring up. Okay, so the second uh, one, and again, this is kind of obvious. So this is the R in true, uh, reconciling difficult passages, mm -hmm. right? So. Was there two cleansings in the uh, of the temple that Jesus did? Or was there one and they were narrated as happening on different days and people moved things around in the story to serve their purposes? Um, and there are lots of other passages that I'm drawing a blank, but there's, there's a number of them that people have pointed to uh, over time. Oh, one of the, one of the ones is, um, you know, the, the, um, the census uh, for the birth of Jesus, like when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, like, there's not really a record that there was a Quirinius who was a governor of Syria during mm. that time. And so there's ways that people like to, you know, get around that. And I, I'm, I'm persuaded by one particular view, but that's a little out of scope for, for our discussion today. Right. So reconciling difficult passages, passages that on the face of it seem to contradict each other or passages that seem to have difficulty from outside sources from the Bible. This is something that people who want to claim inerrancy have mm. to deal with. Yeah, no, I don't have too much more to add to that, except that there's uh, there's a lot of reconciling passages. And most of them, I would say, have fairly simple yeah. reasonings. And even the ones that you can't have mm -hmm. a come to a specific conclusion, I think you can still reasonably say that there are two or three um, three that you could come Correct. to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, many of them have between yep. two and four. 
possible routes of, and as long as you have those possible routes, I think you can escape the charge that, that you have a necessary Mm. contradiction. Right. Um, and even so, and and I'm even, and this is where I would disagree with Lydia McGrew a little bit Mm. that I mentioned earlier, uh, because there were plenty of times in the past where people thought there were contradictory things in the Bible or either just things in the Bible mm-hmm. that were absurd, that um, it turns out over history, the Bible was proven right on. For example, we didn't have evidence until the 1990s, early 1990s, about a King mm, David yeah. in Israel that came Isn't from that outside wild? of the Bible. That okay? took that long. That is to- totally wild. Um, the Hittite civilization, we didn't know about them until the early 1900s from archaeology, but the Bible mentioned it all along. And it was like, who are these people? Like, literally, people thought the Bible was wrong on this, and it was just mm-hmm. making up this people group that never existed. And we found out they did. So I am inclined, given the Bible's yeah. track record, to hold out hope for ones, and there's only, like, mm-hmm. one or two, honestly, where there's, like, no really, like, plausible yeah. path for reconciliation. Most of them have between two and four. So reconciling difficult passages is what you have to think about when it comes to this issue. And again, that is going to be determined by your definition of inerrancy on how yeah. you deal with these yep, difficult 100%. passages. Okay, so the you in true is understanding the authorial intent. Okay, understanding authorial intent. Uh, now this one is, th- uh, this was a couple layers, but let me just try to boil it down, okay? Here's the, here's the problem. Nobody has a definite other than if you're a Ruckmanite, okay, a KJV only is Ruckmanite. That's the only kind of person typically that has a um a definition of inerrancy and inspiration that actually would put inerrancy onto the Bible that mm-hmm. you hold in your hand. Yeah. They would say the 1611 King James Bible is inerrant. That thing mm-hmm. is inerrant. Okay. Everybody else on the planet <laughs> would at least back up their definition of inerrancy a little bit to say that it was the original autographs that were inspired, yep. right? It was it was what the originals said on them that were wrote down. Now, here's the problem. We ain't got those. Yep. <laughs> you know? We don't have the originals. Nobody can, nobody can just go look at the original letter um, to Philemon or or the letter to the church at Corinth. You, you can't do that. You only have what has been passed down. And so people are uh, fine, mostly, to admit that there are errors in the, mm. in the copying, in the, in the scribal, in the text that we hold in our hand. But we want to say that the actual original autograph and manuscripts, which we don't have, were inerrant. So since we don't have those, there is a question in the mind of some of, well, do we need to back up even further and say that what is inerrant is the authorial intent behind what was written in the autographs or what's actually in the autographs? And this gets into the definition of inspiration. Is it is it is what we're talking about a dictation sort of thing where God literally downloads and dictates into the mind of the writer what he wants them to write? Or is it a human thing that must honor and understand the authorial intent, both God's and the human author's intent, in the actual writing of a passage. And so that's, again, it's just another thing that people think about with this issue, is, is the authorial intent and wh- what is the locus of meaning? Is the locus of meaning in the words and the text itself that God inspired, or is it in the intent of what the author wanted to say and, and wanted to write? So another And that's another kind of worldview um, thing, too, because there are people that believe that um, word for word, the Bible is written by God and just use the physical, you know, human to write it down. Yeah. Um. So that's one view. And then, of course, the other view mm-hmm. is, um, yeah, that incorporates both the human, the human side of it because God deals with humans, um, but then inspired by God to write it. So you definitely have two worldviews that definitely clash and have pretty differing views, I would say, on what they believe inerrancy of. Um, mm mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is another thing that came up in the Lycona and How debate because you know you got you have challenges like you have some author you know because okay so the, so the Gospels especially that is what they were kind of honing in on and, and so the Gospels use like source texts behind the Gospels and like you know for example um, uh, the Book of Mark was was written from basically the personal um, um, memoirs mm-hmm. of Peter you know for example because Mark was like Peter's you know sidekick or whatever. Right, so the Book of Mark was written from like the memoirs of uh, of Peter, and so 
um, you have scenarios where certain writers, again, they were using these sources, certain writers would actually update, for example, the Mm, sloppy grammar of other writers or improve upon texts that were written in the past. And and so, and in the Old Testament, you have weird things too, where like clearly uh, scribal edits were done after the fact because there are place names that were updated um, to match what they were later on when a scribe was obviously editing the text, whereas they were written originally on the original place name. And so um, you have this weird thing where if there's a dictation kind of thing going on, God is like contradictory, <laughs> contradicting himself and like somehow inspiring this bad use of language that had to be corrected later on by others or like, you know, it's just, it's just really weird. Like, like inspiring these very human uh, things. Like, you know, there's this, um, I forget exactly where it happens. I can't believe this is, I'm drawing a blank probably because it's almost one in the morning that we're recording <laughs> this, but uh, that's probably why. Uh, but there's a place in scripture where, uh, oh, I think it's in Galatians. Yeah, I think it's in Galatians. Uh, it is where uh, Paul is like rebuking, rebuking Peter you know, for like how he's dealing with the issue of of Judaizers and things like that, and 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 practicing the law, and so it's like, wait, so God inspired like Peter to do the wrong thing, and like Paul to do the right to correct mm. him and do the right thing. Like, if the human element is not there, you get a lot of yeah. weird stuff. Yeah. So you got to have that human element, and so there. So some would want to argue again that right that the that really the inspiration process is not necessarily in like the words itself but in the intent of the no, author, and none of that so. matters if you are a kjv only just so you know that's correct amen <laughs> yes <laughs> it was good enough for the apostle good. paul brother it's good, it's good enough, for, enough for, me. for me okay and then this last one I, I i couldn't figure there's probably a much better way to put this but anyway the way that, the way that i wrote this down was the uh the e for true um the evangelical scope of inclusion okay and, and what i mean by this is that um inerrancy there's a really good book called Five Views on Inerrancy by Zondervan. It's in their Five Views series, um, a, a natural series for it to be in. This is a Five Views book. And uh, it's the introduction I found interesting. Um, they basically are making the point in it that, you know, inerrancy is not just sort of another like theological checkbox. It is a, at least historically, it has been a dividing line. Right, it has historically been a marker of where you land on the spectrum of evangelical versus liberal, et cetera. And so, um, you know, there's a real question of if you don't if you don't have a view of inerrancy, and and some would argue if you don't have a specific like Chicago mm-hmm. statement view on inerrancy, are you even like allowed to call yourself mm-hmm. an evangelical? And and this isn't just like, you know, speculation kind of stuff. There's a, a guy, his last name is Gundry who was kicked out of the Evangelical Theological Society because he started writing things that were in um, contrast and contradicted the um, Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. And for a long time, and it might, I'm not sure, I don't think it's still this way, but for a long time, the only requirement, the only thing you had to sign or whatever to affirm in order to be a part of the ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society, was the Chicago Statement wow. of Biblical Inerrancy. That's the only affirmation you had to have, mm-hmm. other than being a Christian, right? Yeah. Which, I mean, you know. So, uh, so how fascinating, right? That this was literally a a a test for orthodoxy, and that historically there was, and and others have been kicked out subsequently, but like this was mm-hmm. the first one, so that's why it's I mentioned it, and it's important. Is when this Gundry fellow was kicked out for his views. And like again, like that's an ouster from the Evangelical Theological Society. It's it's basically it's basically a group of evangelicals saying, okay, because of your view on inerrancy, you are no longer an evangelical, <laughs> yeah. right? And so others others have come along um, over the years, Kenton Sparks, um, Clark Pinnock, and and others who have come along and started to expand on their definition of of inerrancy. And then there's the real question of. Well, are are they included in the scope? That's why I use mm. that language, evangelical scope of inclusion. Are they included in the scope of evangelicalism? And so, again, I'm not commenting one way or another on whether or not inerrancy uh, should be a test for that. Um, I guess I, I guess maybe I'll just show my hand and say I really don't think it should be because certainly Lydia McGrew is an evangelical, and yet um, she is not an inerrantist. And so, I, I really don't think that 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 should be a test for 
uh, evangelicalism. But anyway, it is one of the issues that people think about, and and it's sort of a starting philosophical point. So um, it's, uh, so many layers well, here, man. What you know? I get out of that is that I think it's important for you and I to come up with our own definition, and then if you or I ever disagree with it, then we'll just kick you or I out of our group. So. I love it. No, it's it's perfect. We should make sure that we we draw up documents yes, and absolutely. sign them and everything. Um, it is. Uh, mm-hmm. it, this is one of those things where this has created a kind of funny dividing line that you don't hear about as often as other things. Like, can you lose your salvation? Um, uh, Calvinistic, right? Belief. Like it. It just this doesn't get the attention maybe as some of the other ones, but um, it does create some tension dividing line in others. Um, but uh. You know, in the yeah, it, yeah, it, it's it a is tough, tough but uh, that's why it's so fun to just, to explore, though. Absolutely, and you know, I uh, this might sound a little immature to some people, but like honestly, I play, and I, 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 I this is like playing in the sandbox for me, right? Like again, I do take the view God created everything; He's Jesus saved my soul, Jesus died for my sins, and I honestly feel like I have a lot of latitude and room to work within the bounds of that. Now, I want to take the Bible seriously, and that's the point. But I, I don't fear for my faith. I don't fear about who God is or or, mm-hmm. or God's nature. As I explore these questions, I just want to know what the truth is. And I think there's good arguments yeah. on both sides. I mean, I understand the argument that if God inspired Scripture and God can't lie, then the Scripture can't err. Therefore, inerrancy is true. But I also agree with people who are like, well, Here's the problem. If we don't take this view of inerrancy, then you have God dictating some really weird stuff mm. that people had to say. Whereas if you just take a look at the human portion of it, we can still say, based on the literary conventions of that time, that this text is inerrant. And I'm like, oh, I see your point there. So, you know, I think the word that Michael Kona used, and again, I'm not necessarily with Michael this, but this is what he said. The word he used was how do evangelicals define you know, flexibility, he's like one word or uh, inerrancy, one word, flexible, mm. you know, flexible, flexibility. There are differing views on this and we kind of just have to accept that for now. And um, and that's what it is. So I don't think this is something that will ever see yeah. consensus. But but seeing the fine hairlines on which the battlegrounds of this issue typically take place. Something tells me we're missing the mark here. Um, I mean, there are some people who are considered by most to be theologically very liberal, like Pete Enns, who would say that um, 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 inerrancy is a dead Mm. project. Uh, In other words, it's a totally dead project. It's not even worth dealing with anymore because everybody just makes it up anyway. And there is a sense in which I'm inclined to agree. I I don't know what it is, but I feel like we're missing something here Mm. given the hairline fractures that this stuff divides on. I think there's a larger truth at play that needs to be considered. Uh, inerrancy might in some way be a distraction. And so I, I, I know that might itself be a little controversial to say, but I think there's a sense of which is true. And maybe as we do more in this uh, occasional series, we'll explore that together and find out what it I is. I think you have a point there, not necessarily the importance of inerrancy, but what is the, are we looking too narrowly at something versus the bigger picture? And yeah, I think that we're, Maybe not come up with our own definition, but maybe shape our worldview a little bit as we keep digging into this. So I'm I'm really excited about because this is a subject where mm-hmm. kind of like you, I have m- kind of my opinions on it, but I am not like I haven't driven my stake into the ground and said this is 100% exactly where I stand. So I think this is going to be a really fun exploration. I, I think so too, and I got to say, like the like, here's the kind of change that I'm talking about, right? So right now, if you look at the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, you have um, you know, some claims about what it is, some descriptions, and then a series of affirmations and denials that are extremely mm. specific. And instead, perhaps what is needed is something like if-then statements that are a little bit more broad on broader areas. Like consistency is a real I'm glad you brought that up. It's actually a really good, it's really a, a really good consideration. Perhaps there's some sort of if-then statement that could be structured around the idea of consistency where it's like if this happens or if this scenario takes place then you know we believe this thing and and Mm -hmm. and 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 that's how it all shakes out so maybe there's some sort of rubric there that we're just we're again like you said we're defining the issue too narrowly whereas if we 
if we just left the current categories mm-hmm. that we have right now and just started with something fresh, we could come to a, a definition. You that and I are about sense, to shake so. up the whole we'll world, see. Steve. That's what's happening here. <laughs> Amen. We're we're putting our stamp. We're putting our Absolutely. stamp on it. All so. right. Well, good Amen. discussion. Um, I, I'm glad that we decided to break this up into a ongoing series because we're an hour in or so, and um, yeah, we have just scratched the surface. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, seriously, we haven't. We barely even talked about anything specific. We've it's been. I wouldn't even say we scratched the surface. We've been observing it from afar. (laughs) Yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of the episode. So the uh, comment of the week uh, for this one, just one this time. uh, Someone commented on our videos and said, "I reject and I rebuke that satanic thumbnail. Don't clickbait and spread lies because you're just hurting more people with trying to get people to click on this video." while baiting them with satanic doctrines of devils. And so Steve and I very kindly replied, we'll be sure to take greater care in the future of selecting just the right thumbnail. Uh, glad it got your attention, though. So thanks for the view. Um, so um, yes, whatever, whatever devilry we have going on, it's attracting um, a few people at least. So I guess we just got to keep on keeping on. Glad we could <laughs> deceive you. If yes. you listened to our uh, episode or watched it, uh, our episode on Joseph, deception mm. seems to be a thing in the We're Bible. All about so deception right. over here at the, my strange Bible. All about, <laughs> uh, yeah, my my strange Bible will lie directly <laughs> yes. through our teeth. All right, Steve. Well, that was a gr- <laughs> that was a great on. episode, and uh, <laughs> excited for uh, all the ones in the future to come. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Share with everyone you know, and uh, we'll see see you next time.